Hey, God for Grown Up listeners, we'd like to invite you to join us for a special series led by Dr. Beatrice Lawrence about death and dying from a Jewish perspective. What do you plan to cover in this series? Well, Dan, I'm going to start actually working through texts in a chronological pattern. So we're going to start in the Bible and look at the experiences of people there dying and the different ideas about the afterlife that occur there. You're looking perplexed. Why would a person want to come to a Lenten series on dying? That sounds really depressing. Oh, I don't know, isn't it just interesting? It's like the weather, it happens to everyone. It's fundamentally a matter of meaning in human life, isn't it? What's going to occur? Yeah, this series will be offered at Queen Anne Lutheran Church. It has five sessions, Wednesdays, March 4th to April 1st. 6 p.m. we start with a simple supper, 6.45 to 7.30 we have our program. There is no cost, all faiths are welcome. So we invite one and all to a conversation that, like the weather, affects everyone. (laughs) Hope to see you there. Wait, the things you just said, can I say three things in response? Three in things. In no particular Great. order? Okay. This is oddly systematic for you. I think we've ventured into new territory. I don't know if I should be offended by that comment. I think maybe you should. But anyway, okay. three things. Because we talked before about how your reasoning is affiliated. It is not. Yeah. Is, I, don't is, I don't but, know. But, but when I have to put things in order, you've noticed when I text you, it's often A, B, C, or one, two, three. You've noticed I have not this. noticed that. Pay attention in the future. Oh, okay. Um, okay, number one. <laughs> or you could be wrong, but... I... <laughs> okay. Often wrong, never in doubt. There you go. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. um, per what you were saying when you the first time that you did a funeral, it's interesting. I think Kaplan's response to why did my loved one die of cancer would be because we haven't cured cancer yet. And where does the divine work? It works in the process of the scientists that are trying to figure out how to prevent this, this disease from taking more people. I love and it. And that's how his God concept gets worked in there. So it's not, and I remember a Reconstructionist rabbi saying, God didn't kill you. A disease killed you. It's our job to cure the disease. Hi, I'm Dan. And I'm B. And this is God for Grownups. And our topic for this episode is gratitude. I wanted to start this conversation with a story about what happened to me two days ago. And of course, it's going to be not a story about being grateful for something because of who I am as a person. I got up Tuesday morning and I was feeling a ton of pressure and stress about a million different things that I needed to do. And I was nervous about getting all of them done and feeling weary. And though I have a really complicated relationship with God and a God concept, I said out loud, you know, God, I could use some help today. You said that? I did. That's unusual for you. Yes. And the the next. A petitionary prayer. It was. It was. And I could use some help today. And I didn't say what help. Okay. I didn't say, let me win the lottery. I didn't say... I think you should have said that. Well, he, but the thing... <laughs> <laughs> I didn't. I just Because felt, God knows what's on your heart. Or in my heart. Or in your heart. Yeah. I don't know what the proper preposition is there. But isn't that something the prophets affirm? That God knows your heart? Yeah, but I'm not sure I agree with the prophets about, like, anything. About anything? Well, I agree that the rich are living on the backs of the poor, and that needs to stop. Okay. So Amos, That's a pretty big thing to agree Amos upon. is right. Let me finish my story. Okay. So, I said, God, I could use some help. Got my kids ready, packed, took Abby to school, on the way to taking Ellie to school, in a car accident. 
and it was more violent and damaging than any car accident I've ever been in. And um, it wasn't my fault. It was a guy in a Tesla. I maintain that people driving Teslas feel privileged. Hmm. We just lost our Tesla driving listeners, but I kind of don't care. At any rate... Wait, so you feel... Tesla drivers in particular are yes. privileged? Yes. What about other cars? I just, I have a thing about Teslas. Okay. Yeah. I'm just irritated. And he was trying to sneak in and make a left turn in crazy traffic with the result that we slammed into each other. And, um, and I was standing there and I thought, God, seriously? I said I could use some help today and this is what happens? And I was angry. And I have felt anger at God a lot in my life, and I suspect that I will moving forward. And I wrestled with this enormously. I said, God, I could use some help, and this is what happened. But you petitioned a God in which or in whom you don't believe. So why are you angry at God? That seems... Do you think it's that easy? Do you think it's that black and white? No, I don't. Do you think I really don't? I don't don't believe in God? No. What I think is that uh, I'm going to speak for myself here, I, which is to say I don't want to make any assumptions about your experience. <laughs> but for myself, I recognize that I have two versions of God at work. I have my default version and I have my theological version. And my default version is the version of God that intervenes the version of God that answers my prayers, the version of God that hears my prayers. My theological version of God, which I haven't reconciled with my default version of God, in fact, which I developed over time because I found the default version of God to be inadequate, can't intervene the way the default version of God can. That's my, my theological version of God is the God who who subsists as the self-giving creative essence of everything. But a self-giving creative essence is not an entity that can intervene. You know that we're in the same place, right? I know we are. And you know. so, I mean, our, our authorities are different. You might quote Kaplan, I might quote Tillich. But, uh, but in the end, we believe, I think, in somewhat similar versions of God. And yet, we find ourselves frustrated, angry, upset when our default version of God, if I may, our default version of God, doesn't measure up. But I think that you're treating this as an almost entirely rational conversation. I, that is how I rationalize it. Right. Yes. I, it's not that. I, it's, um, I know the reality is not that. One thing I cannot quit in my life is the question of relationship with God. So I even as either. I have this Kaplanian notion of God as the sum of the animating forces constantly making a cosmos out of chaos, even though that resonates in me um, as uh, true on some level, I still reach out, I call out for some sort of connection or relationship. And when life upsets me, that's the direction the anger goes. And when something is beautiful, that's the direction as well. And so on the one hand, I can separate those two. And on the other hand, I'm not living in the separation between those two for somehow I'm living in both. Mm -hmm. And when my sister was diagnosed with brain cancer, I was angry at God. When my daughter was diagnosed with a chronic condition, 
chronic autoimmune condition. I was angry at God. When I witness things happening to people everywhere, I am angry at God. And fortunately, you know, in, within my tradition, being angry at God is perfectly acceptable and, in fact, even encouraged in certain circumstances and all of that. My tradition has lost that. I think Jesus, in terms of the, the gospel, portrait, gospel portraits of him, exhibited that disposition incredibly even exactly even even in the the last moments of his life i mean that's when the question becomes profound he quotes the first line of the 22nd psalm my god my god why have you forsaken me and so for me it's there on the books even in the christian scriptures but i think there are many christians who think the the goal is submission to god rather than debate with God, conflict with God, arguing with God. See, I think that's BS. I actually, so I serve, as you know, but I'm going to say this for the, sorry. I love it. I, <laughs> gonna, I couldn't agree more. I'm going to say this for the sake of people who don't know me as well as Dan does. I serve as a fake rabbi for a community in Idaho for Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur every year, and I love it, and it's one of the most wonderful experiences of my year Jewishly. And when I go, we do the prayer services and we have tour studies. And we were studying one Rosh Hashanah, Genesis 22, the story of Abraham being ordered to sacrifice his son, Isaac. And we were struggling with the question of why God would ask for this. And um, one of my friends um, who was diagnosed with stage four metastatic breast cancer said, because God's an asshole. And um, and it just rang out in the room, and we all let it be there. One guy in the corner looked horrified and later cornered me and said, why didn't you stop her? That's blasphemous. I said, well, actually, our tradition welcomes it. God can take it. And um, it was important for her to say it. He has since left that community, which I think is fascinating. But there wasn't discomfort among the rest of us about her just getting to say that. The irony, of course, is that Jewish prayer is 90% praise and gratitude. What, I, what I'm curious about is whether you think the attitude concerning what that, would you say parishioner in, in no, a synagogue? No, she's my say? friend. But I mean in a synagogue. it's Congregant? Congregant, yeah. It seems to me that Jewish tradition would be a lot more comfortable with that, or at least accepting of that, particularly on the other side of of the Holocaust mm-hmm. and the trial on which Elie Wiesel, for example, puts or writes about with respect to God. Yeah. It seems to me there's just a lot more in your tradition, both theologically and historically, that would allow you to say that in a way that might be a lot more difficult for Christians. What do you think? I don't know. Not being a Christian, not living in that community. I can tell you that um, Elie Wiesel's own experience of the trial of God um, in Auschwitz, I think, is sort of a beautiful encapsulation of how this functions in Judaism. If you read the foreword tonight, um, and if you recall the story right. of him witnessing I do. these rebbies putting God on trial, and when they find God guilty of crimes against the Jews and crimes against humanity, they pause One of the younger Rebbies says to an older one, Rebbe, what do we do now? And he looked up at the sky and he said, well, it's time for the evening prayers. I don't know what else. I I wouldn't even know what to say to that. I mean, it's, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's praise and protection. That's what we do in prayer. In the Amidah, one of the central prayers, you ask for things. You ask on a communal level. You ask for things the community needs for food and for the right weather and for health and for knowledge and these sorts of things. 
and there's often space for people to engage in individual petitions. Everything outside of that is, is gratitude. And I always found that fascinating. Like, how does that function, expressing gratitude in set prayer with lived experience and with the feelings about it? My, my friend who said this, in this study of Genesis 22, comes to all the prayer services. She's saying the prayers. She's engaging in these words. Part of what I'm pissed about today, or, or two days ago, was that I said I could use some help. In my mind, that meant strength. In my mind, that meant being able to multitask, like all kinds of things that would be practically matters of energy, right? Instead of a miraculously moved deadline. Like that's not what I was looking for. Right. And I suppose a critic would say, well, can't you look at the experience and maybe wonder if God did answer your prayer just in a way that wasn't first obvious to you? After I was done kicking that person's ass, here's what I would say. Um, the person who ran into you with the, the Tesla? No, the person who asked that question. The person who asked that question. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Wasn't this God's will? Well, first right. I'm going to smack you and now we're going to have a conversation. Um, I remember reading, I think Anne Lamott, with whom I disagree on virtually everything, wrote that you never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. You never know what worse luck your bad luck has saved you from. Got it. Say if you're in a relationship, the relationship falls apart, and then you discover the person with whom you were in relationship is terrible. I think we need to stop there. <laughs> if you're in a relationship as a hypothetical. There you is, go, yeah. <laughs> that is so beyond where I am. But I did have a dream that we were married, and the whole, relation, the whole purpose of our relationship was to buy a house. Weren't we in a movie theater? We were in a in movie theater. We were in a movie theater, and I looked at you, and I said, hey, we're married. And you went, we are? And we stopped for a second. And then I said, wait, with our combined incomes, can we buy a house? And you're to like, maybe. Said, to which I said, let's keep watching the movie so that, so that at least we can get the, the price of the ticket paid for here, if not the house. No, middle-aged. And I have to, so are you. You're the one who says that we're married in this dream of yours, and we're married for fiscal reasons. And you know, the sad thing is, our two incomes, we can't buy a house. That is... <laughs> No comment there, but yes. So anyway, I thought about this because of um, that idea. I don't know what else could have happened that day. We could buy one of those tiny houses. I got two kids and right. a massive dog that you're afraid of. That's true. Sort of. I'm sort of afraid of your dog. He's really sweet. Though. Yes. So um, <laughs> anyway. Sorry. <laughs> so. Oh my God, that was funny. Um, so and Ellie was in the car. She was in the front seat and she got hurt. And she's okay, but she got hurt. The guy who caused the accident took immediate responsibility. He was very sorry. He had strangely manicured eyebrows, but other than that was a lovely man. And you don't think the critic would say that God wasn't somehow involved there? Okay. Yeah, I would tell uh -huh. the critic to like sit down and shut up and let okay. me finish what I'm saying. Um, Let's be clear that mm -hmm. there's a distinction between me and the critic. You're not the critic, okay. I said the critic. Okay. I mean, I, anyway. Because you know me and you're very kind to me. And if I were in a place where I was really hurting, you would never stand up and act as that critic until I was ready to have that conversation. That's correct. Yes. So um, number two, his insurance kicked right in and they even got me a rental car. Okay. Number three, um, people showed up for me. As you know, someone came and stayed with me who was unexpected and just stayed there the whole time until I was taken care of. Um, and... Countless loved ones expressed support and love and hugs and consistently said, you're both okay. I mean, Ellie's injuries are about pain, not about 
like damage. Um, and I thought, this guy decided to make a stupid left-hand turn and try to get away with it. So our cars collided. And then people were, were present. And I'm not sure where else God would act if I really, really relate to Kaplan's notion of God as a creative force that moves through the universe. Where else would people, where'd God act? Well, I mean, I guess the, the first thing that, that you would have to rule out is that God didn't act in the judgment this man made to make a wrongful left turn. I would that have God to... could have been mm-hmm. interventionist there and God didn't. Correct? That would have to I would have to accept a non-interventionist deity and the fact that human beings make decisions and are responsible for the consequences. I guess the question is where where in life if God does somehow play a role is that role played? So I'm a believer in what I would call non-interventionist divine action, by which I mean that Neither. God somehow is involved in these things, but not in a way that changes at least the physical course of events. Could it be that God somehow is present in a person's decision-making process? So I have a, a, a good friend. She's one of our podcast listeners. And she recently, I was, I was having coffee with her, and she was talking about praying for wisdom. And I love that. The trouble is that even there, maybe one could argue that God doesn't intervene the way we think God should. So even in matters of judgment or matters of intellect or matters of decision making, do you think that even there, God, if it's sort of like if God is present, couldn't God nudge a little more? (laughs) Even if God doesn't intervene and violate scientific laws, couldn't God somehow nudge a little more in matters of decision-making? Like Tevye saying, the chosen people, and says to God, couldn't you choose someone else? Meaning just that very orientation in the universe. Um, I don't know the answer to that question. I have asked myself repeatedly why I want an entity to whom I grant responsibility, gratitude, blame. And I've wondered if it's psychological, evolutionary, um, if it's in place of the parents to whom we granted omnipotence when we were very little. I don't know the answer to that question, but I know times that I have tried to embody the the purely uh, reconstructionist uh, Mordecai Kaplan's view of God. I have felt very lonely in the universe. I've had a colleague point out to me that if, if, if I were to proclaim the non-interventionist God, he thinks that most people come to church because they believe that God intervenes yeah. in their lives. And in, in nerd speak, according to Aristotelian causality, that's called, that's called efficient causality. That God is an agent, a being, an entity who intervenes periodically. The trouble, of course, with that is the reality of suffering and evil. If God could intervene but didn't, that makes God into a monster. So you have that on the, on the one hand. I subscribe to material causality. And material causality is essentially that uh, we are the stuff of God, that the stuff of this world is rooted in, in some, some kind of deeper reality out of which things are made. Uh, Tillich talks about being itself. I'm a little uncomfortable with that these days, but the... Catholic poet Gerard Manley Hopkins talks about God as the deep down of things, which I love. And that deep down is this 
John Calvin uses this great image in his Institutes of the Christian religion where he talks about God as the font and wellspring. Yeah, but Calvin had some Calvin said depression, many, I think. Well, I, and I would argue, <laughs> yes. Calvin, I was surprised actually Negative that I would view. even quote Calvin I know, there. I know, But I this wondering. is Calvin in 1527 where he writes, or maybe 1529 where he writes at 27 years old, the first edition of the Christian Institutes. And they're, they're quite remarkable compared to his later editions because he's talking about God as the font and wellspring, if not of being, at least of mercy and grace, and uh, talking about gratitude. In fact, the, there's a great book about Calvin written by a, a, a scholar uh, a generation or two ago named Brian Garrish from the University of Chicago called Grace and Gratitude. And so I've often thought, like you, that the whole Christian life is summed up in gratitude at least from a Lutheran Christian perspective, that God has graciously granted us being, that God has loved us into being, and yet, at the, and not yet, but also at the same time, God has embraced us purely out of love, not because of anything we do. And because of that, we're supposed to live a life of gratitude. I don't like that. You don't like what? Which part of it? The whole thing? Much of it. Am I allowed to say that? You can, but tell um, me what part you don't like. Um, God has loved us into being that this life is a gift and mm-hmm. that our job is to respond with gratitude. Or our, maybe our job is probably overstating it, but our opportunity is to respond. What's wrong like with that? Um, well, right now in my life, I'm pissed. You're pissed. I'm pissed. I'm pissed at, at God at, okay. for a variety of reasons, whatever okay. that God may be. And if someone said this life is a blessing, I'd say for whom? For whom on this planet is it a blessing? And for whom on this planet is it unmitigated suffering? And that our task is to respond with gratitude. Well, I'm not going to respond with gratitude if I'm not feeling it. But I am going to respond with anger when I'm feeling it. And I will respond with gratitude when I feel it. But don't, I don't think that I have a sort of a univocal task to perform here. I do, I do think, wait, can we, I just go back a second to something you said. You were talking about material um, uh, made me think of a book written by a rabbi whose name I'm blanking on, and I'm so sorry, it's a 20th century book, and someone will know when they're listening to this called Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. It's uh, uh, um, not Heschel. <clears throat> no, Howard. But um, it's an essay that it's it's at the end of a C.S. Lewis book. No, it's a whole they, book. Oh, it's, no, but I think an excerpt of it is uh, oh, it might be uh, at of the a C.S. Lewis He wrote book. a whole book, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People. Right, it's a famous book. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't love it. But at least he's taking out the sense of obligation anywhere. He says, this is how the universe works. This is natural law. Two objects can't occupy the same space. So your cars hit. And that's it. And that's the way the universe was set up. Right. I think that's a good way to look at it. I I do think that that is more satisfying than trying to find some hidden meaning in it or attribute gratitude within an experience for which I'm not grateful. Am I grateful it wasn't worse? 100%. I, I would, I, uh, the, one of the first funerals I did as a pastor was for a woman who died of cancer. And I remember during the homily turning to her grandchildren sitting in the front row and saying, God didn't cause your mother's death, cancer did. Your grandmother's death, cancer did. Yeah. And I felt 
really good saying that. And I had, there's, there's a lot in my tradition that would support that reading. Uh, the Apostle Paul, for example, in 1 Corinthians 15, 26, talks about how death is the enemy of God. I don't always believe that. I, I, I will never forget reading Richard Rubenstein's After Auschwitz, where he talked about how the Messiah for the Jews in the concentration camps was death, because at least death brought an end to their suffering. <sighs> And so I don't believe that death is 100% the enemy of God, but I, I certainly resonate with that most of the time. And I had somebody come up to me at the end of the, uh, or after the service was over, and she said, I've never heard a pastor preach that before. And I thought, first I thought, what, a, what an opportunity for me to witness to my kind of faith. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, I thought, how sad that no other Christian pastor has taken the pulpit and used it to preach a word of good news, and or at least not bad news. Yeah. And so I, I, it's interesting. We don't have to agree, and it's fine that we don't. But I like listening to your views. Well, but I would say that, and I'm not interested in in reconciling on this one. Mm-hmm. I feel quite firm in my conviction that part of life, at least. Is, is to be sent, spent in gratitude. And I feel that because I feel good when, I, when I'm in a place of gratitude. But I like, so there I'm not going to take that away, but I do like what you're saying about how there are certain times and like Ecclesiastes says, there are certain times and seasons, a time for mourning and a time to dance. And I think in the midst of mourning, it's okay if we're not grateful because it's, it's horrible, it's terrible. People... Everybody in our lives, they will all die and we will mourn. And people will mourn presumably our deaths as well. And, and so I think in those times, yeah, we should be grateful for the, for the life of the person. But we don't have to be grateful for the fact that they've died. Right. And we don't have to be grateful that we're feeling sorrow and bereavement. And I guess my understanding of God on a good day is that God joins us in that suffering. And I, I know you quoted Eli Wiesel. I think I'm mispronouncing that, but I'm close. No worries. I will also mispronounce the name of Eddie Hillisom, who mm-hmm. essentially checked herself into a concentration camp mm-hmm. and died with, uh, with other Jews in that camp. And she said, I'll never, you know these words better than I. She said that she carried the presence of God in her and that her job and task in life was to protect the vulnerable presence of God in her. And I think, what a powerful testimony to a suffering God. Don't you think it's interesting that she's more significant for Christian theologians than Jews? I didn't know that. I did read her in a book by Richard Carney, who he's a Catholic theologian. Yeah, she definitely... Anatheism like is the book. Jews would not know who you were talking about. That is interesting to me. And I find it interesting that... that the essay, or at least an essay from the book, uh, Why Bad Things Happen to Good People, is also, I don't know if it's as well known among Jews as it is among Christians. I've heard a lot of Christians appeal to that essay as well. And yet I think it's appended to a book written by a person, C.S. Lewis, who may not agree. Sure. I don't know. I'd have to go back. C.S. Lewis is often appropriated in ways that I, I wonder if they're actually faithful to, sure. to what he said. but. Can I, wait, the things you just said, can I say three things in response? Three in things. In no particular Great. order. Okay. This is oddly systematic for you. 
I think we've ventured into new territory. I don't know if I should be offended by that comment. I think maybe you should. But anyway, okay. <laughs> three things. Because we've talked before about how your reasoning is affiliated. It is not. Yeah. Is, I don't know. Is, but I don't know but when I have here. to put things in order, you've noticed when I text you, it's often A, B, C, or one, two, three. You've I have not this. noticed that. Pay attention in the future. Oh, okay. Um, okay, number one. <laughs> or you could be wrong, but... I. Okay. Often wrong, never in doubt. There you go. Oh, <laughs> so okay. um, per what you were saying when you the first time that you did a funeral... It's interesting. I think Kaplan's response to why did my loved one die of cancer would be because we haven't cured cancer yet. And where does the divine work? It works in the process of the scientists that are trying to figure out how to prevent this, this disease from taking more people. I love and it. that's how his God concept gets worked in there. So it's not. And I remember a reconstructionist rabbi saying, God didn't kill you. A disease killed you. It's our job to cure the disease. And that was exactly how she saw it. But I have a friend um, who died several years ago whose brother had been killed many years before that. And they were her mother's only two children, and they both died before she did. Both in car accidents. And I went to the funeral in my hometown in Moscow. And her mother was there. And uh, they were Methodists. And I was really curious what the minister was going to say. Because what do you say, especially to a mother who lost both her children in car accidents? I'm bracing myself. No, I think you might like it. It was not upsetting. And I mean, it was upsetting, but it wasn't. She got up and she said, and I'm going to say a bad word now, which might need to get bleeped out, because she said, you know what? Shit happens. That's all she said. You already used another profanity earlier in the episode. I thought I abbreviated it. No, you didn't. But... That's okay. As long as it comes out of your mouth and not mine, I still have a job. I am so foul-mouthed. Okay, so... Um, Say it again. What was the... She got up and she said, you know what? Shit happens. Got it. Okay, and the third, the third thing? This is why I don't think ABC or 123 is really how you communicate. I, I do in text because I can look at it. Right away. Your first point was Kaplan. Your second point was the Methodist oh, pastor. And I your remember. third. Yes, good. For what you were saying about our obligation, or you said something about living I in gratitude. I task or job. And I, I, some, I, some orientation. And, and you were saying you feel better when you experience gratitude. And it's true. They've even done psychological studies indicating that gratitude is healthy for people, right? In addition to the regular daily prayers um, being full of gratitude in Judaism, you're supposed to say blessings all day, every day. You're supposed to say 100 blessings a day. It's hard to get all of that in. And the blessings are all praise and gratitude. And you're just, what it means is you're supposed to orient yourself so that as you're going throughout your day, you notice the things around you and you say thank you for them. And this is in the midst of whatever is going on in your life. Now, some of them are funny. Well, you're supposed to say a blessing when you see a Torah scholar, which cracks me up because Torah scholars, Torah scholars wrote these things. Um, you're supposed to say a blessing when you see an exceptionally good-looking person, when you see a, an exceptionally weird-looking person, anytime you see a large group of people, any beautiful natural phenomena, any weather, whatever. And if you can't think of the blessing that you should say, you just say, Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the universe, who makes the things of creation. That's beautiful. And you're just supposed to, no matter what you see. And you know what? Even in the midst of these conversations we're having and how we feel, I say that blessing all the time. If I'm driving and I stop because I see a lovely skyline or anything like that. And so gratitude, I think, is also hardwired. 
I think it is. I think when I hear when I heard your first option with with Kaplan, mm-hmm. there are certain um, beliefs that they're not hard for me. They're yeah. easy, and I and I think as much as I struggle with God, and as much as I struggle with these two versions of God that we talked about, and I I think you were right to call me on the on the fact that it's not. It, it's rational, but it's certainly not rational in my life. I mean, when I when I get sick or depressed or feel lonely, I often, in a in a in a quiet person way, will will shout out, and I'm angry at God. Where is God in the midst of all yeah. these things? But but I do. I I think we all are invited to a, to a life of gratitude. In part because yes, I think that gratitude makes life better. I think it's it's something that even even Richard Dawkins, one of the most outspoken new atheists of our of our time, he says that basically you won the cosmic lottery simply by the fact that you exist. Gratitude is a natural response to that. What I love about being sometimes barely inside the Christian tradition is that I have a uh, a referent for that gratitude mm-hmm. that isn't just an empty cosmos, but something more. Mm-hmm. And I think the whole task of theology is to say maybe something, what is it, one theologian put it this way, to learn to say the least wrong thing about God. And so I start with gratitude. And the fact that I find myself reaching out, the, the Catholic theologian Karl Rahner said, when we find ourselves reaching out this way, there is something of God in that, basically, that, that there's the spirit of the divine that's opening us up. And that might, for me, that might be a little too much. I sometimes feel like reaching out is the result of our condition of being separated from God. But either way, I find myself reaching out to something. And I want to honor that something, which isn't a thing at all, with gratitude. And, and yet at the same time, there are moments, you are right, where I don't feel that. And and I think maybe we're wrong to tell people that they should. Well, I think that having gratitude in life, positive, plus, great idea, right. natural part of who you are, but so is the anger and so is the resentment. Yeah. And so are this whole spectrum of responses. And one of the things I love about Jewish tradition is you're supposed to take this entire spectrum of responses into your relationship with God, that there isn't an emotional reality that's not welcome there. But I was going to ask you if I can like be a pain and say something that might s- sound uh, problematic in this. Say arena, it. But I, Why would I you, need you to might ask be me? Go. Um, so Yitzhak Greenberg uh, wrote after the Holocaust um, that his words were: "No statement, theological or otherwise, should be made that would not be valid in the presence of burning children." That's a really high bar because you said saying the least wrong thing about god it made mm. me think of it yeah essentially what's and that's a really good in the midst bar. of an essay mind you yeah about wow that's theology. a really good um, standard it means it's possible that the only right response is silence yeah. it's also possible that it raises questions about what it means to be grateful in a world where things like that happen. I actually have a friend who's a Holocaust survivor. She was seven when she and her mother were taken by the Nazis from Hungary and she was eight at liberation. Her whole family had died. And she carried a Sidor, a prayer book with her the entire time she was in 
concentration camps. And she is one of the most religious people I've ever met. And she's full of joy. So I read that and I look at her experience and I wonder about what's a responsible role of gratitude in light of history and in light of lived experience. I think that's such a great question. I think that I'm amazed at how people respond so differently to tragedy. People, I remember reading a, uh, this book by a guy named Don Luck, very unfortunate name, Donald Luck, <laughs> but a good Lutheran theologian who used to teach at a seminary back east called Why Study Theology. I used it in my courses at PLU, the first place I taught. And he talks about how people in, a, in, a, in an airplane accident who lived to tell about it responded to the accident in very different ways. Some people, some people became more religious. Mm -hmm. Other people left their, their faith because they, they couldn't fathom how God wouldn't intervene in something like that. And I've seen that both those responses as well. And I think it's a, I think it's a huge challenge, whether it's in a, in a tragedy like that, or even the more horrific tragedy that you're talking about with children who are suffering at the hands of other human beings. I don't know. Maybe sometimes the only thing, maybe ultimately the only thing is to say nothing. In the face That's of the silence. Face of that, and maybe there's a holy silence there mm -hmm. uh, that honors the the tragedy without trying to explain it, and maybe that's where we all kind of end in this in this lifelong discussion, this lifelong conversation with God. I I don't know. I I I do really like what you talked about the blessings and how it's almost like a hermeneutic of life or a lens through which we see life, and I would. There's a rough parallel there in, uh, in the creeds that we say in mm -hmm. the Christian tradition that I had a professor in seminary describe the creeds as signposts of belief. And the creeds in some cases will invite us to see life the same way. Like the third article of the Nicene Creed says, we look for the resurrection. And I think to myself, that's really interesting. It's not look forward to the resurrection, we look for the resurrection in the midst of our everyday lives of, you might say, of signs of new life all around us. And I, I think that's a good way to live. And I think gratitude is a good way of live. But I recognize as you're bringing out that there are, that there are limits to this and that maybe gratitude, in fact, certainly gratitude doesn't have a, doesn't have a place in everything, sometimes silence. Can I tell you about a time I killed somebody's gratitude? Sure. So proud. Not. I had a student um, in a class, and we were talking about we were talking about God in the Hebrew Bible, who is not all the time omniscient, omnipotent, omnipresent. And um, she said something about how she knew God to be those things because when her family came over from Vietnam, the ship they were on sunk, and they were the only two to survive and get to the states. And I said to her, "What about all the other people who died?" and her face went blank. She was going to become a nun. She didn't. I don't think I'm solely responsible for that or anything. I'm not that powerful. But I do believe that unexamined gratitude is a problem. Yeah, there's a book, uh, the book of James in the New Testament that says faith without works is dead. But mm -hmm. I've long thought that faith without questions is dead. And faith with Socrates says that great line, the unexamined life is not worth living. I think the unexamined faith is not worth having. Mm -hmm. and, and, and it's not only because it's, it's, 
destructive to oneself, it can be profoundly destructive to other human beings. Yeah. People who are in the midst of, of mourning a tragedy don't need to hear everything happens for a reason yeah. or God has a plan or like I heard at a funeral, I will never forget this, a close friend of mine from graduate school, his wife died unexpectedly at 47 years old and he was absolutely devastated and broken by that by that experience. And I will never forget going to that funeral, hearing one person after another get up and say, God couldn't wait any longer. God had to have her home. Ugh, I'm and, sorry. I, and, and the only person who said otherwise was the bishop who was present. And I talk about an intervention. I, I would almost argue God intervened through him by saying, God didn't want this. Yeah. This isn't God's fault or responsibility. It's not as if God couldn't wait a few more years. God gets this person eternally. <laughs> and so I think, you know, I think in those situations, people of faith need to, to step up and, and call out others who say these kinds of things because particularly from a pastoral expect, uh, uh, perspective that I have, it can be ruinous and so damaging to other people. But once we do that, I think we need to clear the clear the decks and talk about versions of God that may or may not live up to our scrutiny. But I don't know, maybe uh, any God that can be killed should be. And do you, do you think you might be a more Orthodox Christian than people might think? If by Orthodox you mean Calvinist, absolutely not. No, no, no. I don't mean that at all. What do you mean? Um, in terms of taking the texts and taking the ideas and having them lived in your form of Christianity, in many ways you are closer to what was written than people who claim to be very, very serious. And methodolo methodologically, as you're saying, I am. Yeah. yeah I mean, I, Jesus in the Gospel of Luke says that Satan is responsible for affliction. Chapter 13, he says that. And that's the common view held by... Uh, by I would say there were lots of people in Jesus's time who were Jewish who held this apocalyptic view mm -hmm. that God isn't responsible for these things, but but other entities are. And so, yeah, I really feel like it is my job to go back to Scripture and find out what the tradition actually teaches. Right. I mean, one thing I was thinking about as we 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 close up here is that the Apostle Paul begins most of his letters by thanking God and uh, thanking God for the fellowship that he has with the people to whom he's writing. Jesus doesn't thank God. When Jesus dies, he doesn't thank God. He doesn't say, thank you, God, for this life I lived and for, uh, for giving me, the, from a Christian perspective, giving me the capacity to be the Messiah. He doesn't say anything like that. He just says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? And that's the end of his life. And so human. it is. And I think it's profoundly Jewish. And I think we Christians have really lost that. Really? Not all of us, but I think those of us who really want to take Jesus's last words seriously need to rethink what it means to be grateful, both when that's appropriate and when it's not. I did want to point out before we close up here in light of what you just said about what Jesus said about suffering, that when I walked into Dan's house tonight, on his dining room table is a book that just says Satan. And I thought, we are so weird. Because we on the weird. one hand, it totally didn't shake me. I was like, oh, cool, I want to look at that. I'm like, what if one of your parishioners comes in here and sees this book? Like, 
They would probably say the same thing. Oh, they would. I got a cool okay. church. That's yeah. awesome. But I, I hear what you I hear what you're saying, and and that'll be another topic for for us, perhaps a different episode. Yes. But uh, that's also for a forum that we're doing at at my church, and you'll be part of that forum. We're excited. So yeah. So, well, I don't know if we if we totally address the topic of gratitude, but I don't think a person ever could. No. But uh, until next time. All right. Take care, everybody.